You're listening to Season 5 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 5.7, Grown Up, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm fine, except it's a terrible day for rain. It's not raining. (laughs) Yes, it is. Is this a bit? Are you doing a bit right now? And I'm Nina, no longer new to War in the Pocket, and not really able to be funny or clever about it right now. Still too moved. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 616 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Daniel and Catfoot13. And welcome back to a couple of returning patrons. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Special thank yous this week to Brad, who bought us a book from our wishlist, and to Lucas G for buying us a coffee on Kofi. If you've enjoyed hearing us talk about everyone's favorite Christmas and New Year's Gundam, help keep us independent and ad-free by supporting us on Patreon or Kofi. Links to both are on our website at gundampodcast.com support. Okay, but how shocked would you be to learn that there is a different Christmas Gundam that might be some people's favorite? I assume I won't be able to make a call about that for some years. You assume correctly. This week we are covering Poketo no Naka no Senso, Episode 6, Poketo no Naka no Senso, or War in the Pocket, Episode 6, War in the Pocket. The final episode of the miniseries, it was released on August 25th, 1989. Storyboards for this episode were handled by overall director Takeyama Fumihiko, who also served as the episode director. The animation director was Kawamoto Toshihiro, who was previously animation director on episodes 3 and 5, and who I talked about a bit more last week. With that out of the way, let's hear the recap. Once Bernie decides to stay and fight, there's no time to waste. He and Al get to work on the damaged Zaku in the woods, making repairs and checking its systems, but there are a few more things they need. Tools they can buy, spare parts they can steal from downed gyms around the colony, but weapons? Stealing weapons would be too risky. Luckily, two of the weapons caches Misha set up are still out there. The first truck is already being towed away by the time Bernie and Al drive up, and even though they race to the second, Federation soldiers have already arrived at the parking lot. Al, however, has a plan. The young boy takes a crowbar and begins to hit the Federation jeep, smashing the headlights and windshield, denting the hood, yelling for them to leave the colony. When the soldiers run up, his yells turn into sobs, and he tells them his father died in the recent attack. 
that Zeon never would have attacked Rhea if the Federation weren't there. While they're distracted trying to comfort the boy and warn him away from future vandalism, Bernie drives the truck out of the parking lot and away. Yet the contents of the truck lead to another snag. With a heat hawk and 12 grenades, but no rifle, Bernie will be shot to pieces before he can even get close to the Gundam. As they eat lunch and watch preparations for the Christmas parade downtown, Bernie gets an idea of his own. He calls a company that rents inflatables, like the two and three story tall Santas and snowmen decorating the town, knocks out the employee who comes to meet them, and steals a few. It will be an ambush. Bernie will draw the Gundam into the forest near the base, where there are no civilians and the woods will give him cover to get in close. They rig up trip wires to the mobile suit-sized grenades, place the balloons, and, through the pouring rain, make final repairs to the Zaku. The storm clears just as they are performing final systems checks, the warning lights ticking over from red to green as systems come online. Before dropping Al off at home, Bernie entrusts him with one last task. Handing over a VHS tape and a plain cover and a blue floppy disk, Bernie's voice stays cheerful as he says, If the plan fails, if I die, play the disc and do what it tells you. It seems to only now hit Al that Bernie could die, but his older friend comforts him and sends him inside. Once Bernie is alone, the cheerfulness falls away. He looks a little sadly at Chris's house before driving off. The next day, Al goes with his mom to the spaceport to pick up his dad. It should be a happy occasion, but Al is distracted, watching the clock, waiting for 2 p.m. when the operation is set to begin. In the funicular on the way home, he is caught up in his own thoughts and almost misses it when his dad tells them his ship passed very close to a battle. He saw a Xeon ship destroyed right outside his window, and one of the ships that surrendered was carrying a nuclear missile and bound for Rhea. Al goes cold. There's no more threat. Bernie doesn't have to fight. Over the confused protests of his parents that this isn't their stop, Al gets out of the rail car and runs to where they set the ambush. But Bernie has already launched. Chris is called in and she launches the Alex, taking off after the Xeon mobile suit. She chases and shoots, and Bernie doesn't counter, just dodges and runs, drawing the Alex towards the woods. The order comes for Chris to fall back, but she ignores it. Al is getting closer and looks up to see clouds of pinkish smoke spreading through the trees. Once there, the trees and the dense smoke make for very low visibility. Al stumbles around, yelling Bernie's name, hoping to get his attention. Chris's search sets off one of the tripwires, and one after another the huge balloons deploy, drawing the Alex's fire. Al is knocked to the ground when the balloon near him suddenly and forcefully inflates, and stays there once the shooting starts. No one can hear him yelling. In the confusion, Bernie catches Chris unawares. She shoots the Zaku and Bernie is wounded, but in the next moment, the Zaku cleaves the mounted gun from the Alex's arm and slices across its midsection. Chris is wounded too. It's Beam Saber versus Heat Hawk as the two mobile suits cut at each other, tackle each other to the ground and cross more of the trip wires, this time setting off grenades. All the while, Al scrambles after them, tumbling and sliding down the hill, yelling, Bernie! You don't have to fight now! Finally, 
in clear open space at the edge of the woods and an office park. The two mobile suits face off. They charge at each other, weapons at the ready, and Al races toward them unseen, still hoping to avert disaster. The Zaku neatly removes the Alex's head, but the Alex puts its beam saber through the middle of the Zaku and its generator. The explosion knocks Al back into a tree, shreds the Zaku to pieces, and engulfs what remains in black smoke. Sirens announce the arrival of soldiers and medics. Al is horrified to see Chris, his neighbor Chris, pulled unconscious from the Alex cockpit. There is very little left of the other pilot. The floppy disk Bernie left behind is a video recording of himself, explaining that the VHS is a taped confession, plus every bit of evidence and explanation for the planned nuclear attack that Bernie can think of. Al should take it to the police. If he can get some adults to believe it, they can still save the colony. I could have taken it myself, but it would have felt like running away. He's not sure why, but he wants to fight the Gundam now. He asks Al not to blame himself or to hate the other pilot. They're all just doing what they think is right. With a smile, Bernie promises to visit if he gets through this alive and asks Al to say hi to Chris for him. Then he walks off frame, leaving only the woods and the Zaku's hand until the tape clicks off. A few weeks pass. Al is yelling in his sleep and having nightmares, quiet and withdrawn. Walking to school for his first day back from the break, he runs into Chris, her arm in a sling, and her parents helping her with luggage. She's been transferred back to Earth and wanted to say goodbye before she goes. She asks him to give Bernie her regards, and Al chokes back tears as he says, Bernie will be sorry he missed you. Chris kisses Al on the cheek before they part. The school assembly is held outside their ruined building. The principal gives a speech about the end of the war and the scars that remain. That they've lost not just their school, but many friends, parents, siblings. The current peace cost lives. Al begins to cry. Che and Talcott, misunderstanding Al's sadness, pat his shoulder and try to comfort their friend. That there will be another war soon bigger and flashier than the last. Now that we have at least temporarily composed ourselves, we are finally ready to talk about the last episode of War in the Pocket, titled War in the Pocket. <laughs> hey, that's the name of the show. I also want to note really quick before we get into it, there was a lot to say about this episode and a few topics we've decided to push uh, to our wrap-up episode next week. So please don't add us asking why we didn't talk about X, Y, or Z. We will probably address it next week. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Ever since we started this project, I've noticed that watching the episodes in this way allows me to engage a little bit more deeply, to uh, allow the shows to penetrate my tough outer layers and, and evoke powerful emotions from within me. 
That was especially true on First Gundam, and it's true again here. This episode, which has always been very powerful, nonetheless hit me a lot harder this time than before. I was surprised that my second watch through of the show didn't make me feel any less emotional than the first one. I wasn't any less sad. I didn't cry substantially less. It hits just as hard. Oh, it was worse for me. That is perhaps part of the genius of this particular tragedy and how they tell it. It's not a tragedy or a sadness based on surprise. There is no surprise factor. We suspect what's coming for a long time. Mm -hmm. And there are some surprises within it, but most of our reaction is about the tension that they've built up and the emotion that they're able to convey. This tragedy is a collision. It's what happens when three different vectors all run into the same point, which they do visually in that absolutely gorgeous final scene of the battle when Al, the Zaku, and the Alex are all slowly racing towards each other. The storyboarding, the construction of the various scenes in this episode, the way things are framed, the point of view of the camera was really interesting, I thought. They did a lot of different stuff (laughs) with (laughs) the editing, the camera work, the sound. Part of what made that scene so powerful is at the moment of impact, everything goes completely still. Al gasps, and then everything goes silent except for a little bit of a crackle from the beam saber. And that's also the only movement that we get in the cuts is the crackle of electricity on the beam saber. And we cut to looking at this shot from a ton of different angles. Al is suspended in midair as he's running toward it. And then the explosion happens. When you said we cut to a still shot, I was going to point out that it's not entirely still. (laughs) Not to be pedantic, but because that little bit of motion in the beam saber, to me, elevates the whole thing beyond what it would be if it were merely a still frame. This episode was storyboarded and directed by the overall director, by Takeyama Fumihiko. And so it really seems to be something that he took personal and almost complete control over, not to erase the contributions of all of the animators and sound design people and musicians and colorists and photography people who contributed to making this episode so good, but this is one person taking on a ton of the sort of top-level control and deciding how this episode was going to look. And it is phenomenal. It's a superlative episode on basically every level. I mentioned the different camera angles just now. There are some shots that are from straight above people, like when Al is laying in bed the night before the plan. There's one directly in front and slightly above the car, looking at Bernie and Al through the windshield. There's one from inside the car, sort of across Bernie, so he's in the foreground and Al's in the background. Not one, but two montages (laughs) related to the repair of the Zaku and preparations for their big plan. Including one that gets an insert song from the the opening music. And that one, I believe, reuses some of the opening animation from the first episode, the shots of the city itself within the colony. There are more examples of reused animation in this episode than in the prior ones. Um, Not in a way that I think looks bad, but in a way that does stand out given how little reused animation there has been. In particular, I want to highlight one scene 
which is when Al learns about the surrender mm. of the Xeon forces, there's a musical sting in the first part of it, and they reuse that same musical sting a few times when big dramatic moments happen. But then they have the background go black and Al goes blue, like all in shades of blue, which felt like a nod to First Gundam when they were really highlighting emotions from Amaro, from Char. Yeah. I was also going to point to that scene because it's a great example of how much of this episode is centered within Al's experience. Not 100%, but it really is grounded in his perspective. We, the audience, don't see the battle between the Federation fleet and uh, von Helsing's squadron. We don't see the Graf Zeppelin surrender, which would probably have been very exciting. Even if they just showed us the wreckage and debris afterwards, that would be a pretty cool shot. We are denied that thrill to bring it down into Al's world, into Al's experience. There are a couple other reasons that I believe that they did that, but we'll we'll come back to those. <laughs> One other kind of shot comes up a few times within this episode, which is a very zoomed out distance, high angle shot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This happens during the fight itself. This happens when Al is saying goodbye to Chris. I believe there were a couple other moments. They do this like in the um, the shot of the school at the end when the principal is giving his speech. And some of these are establishing shots. Some of these are meant to just show us, okay, here's a city street and everybody preparing for Christmas. But many of them serve to create a feeling of smallness hmm. and of insignificance that here is this tiny person or in the scale of a colony this tiny fight and everything all around is fine everything all around is normal the the smallness and the insignificance of what's happening the final shot of the episode does the same thing with a long pull back first showing a portion of the colony from above then showing the colony then a little more zoomed out And then finally, just a field of stars as we get further and further away from the conflict, as the contents of the show become smaller and smaller. Do you think this is connected to the title of the show and of the episode, War in the Pocket? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's fundamental to the themes of the show itself. You talked about Al's perspective, and Al's perspective is certainly very important in this episode. The show also wants us to remember that the show isn't about Bernie or Chris or the Federation or Zeon. The show is about Al. Mm -hmm. And there are all of these moments that sort of contrast that perspective and focusing on Al and how all of this is affecting him. The end of the fight, we're not shown the wreckage up close or the arrival of the like safety team to see what's happened and clean things up and help the pilots. We watch Al sit there in shock for minutes as he reacts to what's happening. And we can just hear it in the back. Like We're hearing all these people talking, all these comments, this and that and the other, but we're looking at Al. And when Al sees the medics pulling Chris out of the Gundam's cockpit, The view that we get of Chris is like super zoomed in on her. We can see parts of other people's bodies, but they're out of focus. It creates a tunnel vision effect that is definitely what Al is feeling in that moment. But then when Al watches the tape from Bernie 
First, there's a, an overhead shot of his desk with everything laid out on it. Then a screen playing the tape. We never hear or see or get any indication of what Al is feeling or thinking while he watches this tape, but we know he's the one watching it. We are sitting in his spot. We are positioned where he is watching the tape. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, like, obviously this is how taping yourself works, but also that at the end of it, Bernie just walks out of frame and is gone. Yeah. You already said this, but again, I want to emphasize Al's complete absence in that scene. It is only implied that Al is watching it. And I do believe that Al did watch this video, although I think he probably watched it even before the fight. Since we just brought it up, I do want to address a fandom thing, which is the hamburger line. Ah, yes. Which, first of all, in our subs, doesn't appear. I've been assured that it is in the dub. Secondly, we listened very closely to the Japanese. First, they say bara bara, which means like in pieces. The other pilot is in pieces. And then they use the word minchi, which is mince, minced meat of some kind. And they basically say it's worse than. So whatever is left of him is unrecognizable meat bits. And I get that there's a kind of dark humor to the omnipresence of burgers in Gundam. And then they describe this guy's looking like hamburger. But this didn't read funny to me at all. Mm. In a lot of media that I've watched or read, they describe wounds in English as having turned someone's hand or foot or limb to hamburger. Yeah. That is a thing that happens when someone gets crushed or is close to an explosion and a limb or part of a person is just so destroyed that it's not recognizable as anything other than meat. And I get that there's a certain amount of like catharsis in being able to joke about these tragedies. And I think there's a certain sense of like camaraderie to be found in it. Um, but it to me, it's just horrifying. No shade. I get that it's a fandom thing, but I really didn't find it funny. Mm. There are a lot of hamburgers in this show, though. Part of the reason why we listened to the Japanese for that line so closely is because I wanted to try to figure out if the writer was doing something intentional with hamburgers. Practically, the first line Al has in the show is like, uh, synthetic hamburger again. And then we get this at the end, which kind of creates a, a book ending effect. But because it's not actually hamburger in the Japanese, I just don't think anything like that is being done. It really is just a way of describing how mutilated, how utterly destroyed Bernie's body is. Returning to the animation side of things, there are many little character animation things that crop up that really stood out to me. Bernie flicking open and putting on his sunglasses one-handed. I wanted to talk about that, actually. Um, that's, this is the scene where Bernie and Al are walking down the road away from the Zaku. And I, I kept looking at it. And after Bernie puts on his sunglasses, I kept thinking this reminded me of something. And I was like, what? What does this remind me of? They look a lot like Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman in the poster for Rain Man. Hmm. Cruise in his sunglasses, Hoffman in his tan jacket, walking side by side. And Rain Man came out just a year earlier. 
but the gesture and the way it's animated really struck me. There's a bit when they're going to get the weapons trailer and uh, the Federation officers are walking along behind them and Al starts to get out of the car and Bernie like reaches over and grabs him and pulls him back. Very subtle, very good. The wink when he mentions Chris in the tape, the salute to Al at the end of it, the way Chris's hair falls forward over her shoulder when she kisses Al on the cheek. Her hair kind of falls in a similar way when she's being pulled out of the wreckage of the Alex. They even, I (laughs) bugged out when I saw this, they even animated the little changes in the way leather reflects light when Bernie steps on the seat of the Zaku. It like changes a little bit as he shifts his weight on it. It's so good. Oh, and gosh, the um, the whole scene of the Zaku in the rain with the rainwater washing down across the Zaku. Beautiful. I want a looping animation <laughs> of that. And that should be the music video for all music. Like the um, lo-fi beats to study and relax to girl. Just like do that, but with the Zaku in the rain. The Zaku in the rain actually brought me back to that idea I had last week about Bernie and nature and mm-hmm. the Zaku before they fix it, before it's a machine of war again as having almost been like reclaimed by the natural environment. It's like the color practically matches the grass. And you know, before Bernie gets into the Zaku for his final battle, he stands there and is looking off into the forest and all we can hear is some birds tweeting which I thought of in the context of your comments last episode about Bernie and nature. Uh, and I think I think there's something there. I, I think it is meant to draw our attention. It also has the effect of reminding the audience that even though Chris and Bernie have both chosen to fight in the foothills, in the woods, because there won't be any people around, that is not a clean choice. They will still be killing animals, destroying trees. They will still be causing damage. There aren't clean choices. There are only better and worse choices. And I think much of this episode and this show is about showing how you can't know all the factors. You can't predict all the outcomes. Every choice you make is going to be based on only a small, limited perspective that you personally have. Before Tom gets too philosophical, I have one other thing I want to talk about with the visuals. (laughs) In particular with the use of music, but also with some of the character animation in this episode, there's an incongruity. There is this off-putting sense of disconnect or dissonance. You know, for the first scenes of working on the Zaku, it's happy music, blue skies, fluffy clouds. You know, this could be two brothers working on a car. I kept getting flashes to me as a kid helping my dad with computers, you know, handing him tools that he needed or parts that he'd removed or dealing with cables that were under the desk because I was small and could get under the desk more easily. Presumably when Al goes to that tool supply store, that's the cover story or something like it. My big brother and I are working on a petite mobile suit or something. The way the city montage is cut so uh, precisely to the music that's playing over it and the fairly upbeat opening song. How much of the preparation time Al and Bernie spend smiling and laughing 
And it feels like they're both in denial. It feels <laughs> like reality is being held at bay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Viewed retrospectively, having seen Bernie's final message, we know that Bernie has realized he's probably going to die. He has come up with a plan that will satisfy his own need to prove something to himself. He's also come up with a backup plan that he hopes will save the colony even in the likely event that he fails, and he's basically resigned to it. As for Al, the change in his mood from the prior episode to this one is stark in a way that does seem a little discordant compared to how traumatized he was throughout the entirety of episode five. I can't tell if this is the right moment to open up one of the big things, (laughs) because I think this comes to one of the big topics for this series. If not now, when? So much of War in the Pocket is about pointless death. And what is pointless death and what is pointlessness in wartime In the aftermath of the first attempt to destroy the Alex, when Bernie says he's giving up, Al says something along the lines of, but then all of those people died for nothing. Al needs it all to mean something. He needs it all to matter. And the minute they take on this mission to try again, it does. Which is part of why the way this ends is so utterly tragic. The decision by the writers to have the nuclear missile be captured and to have Al learn that before the fight happens is crucial to the themes of the show because it makes the whole fight pointless, in a sense. Can you know that death is pointless, that a mission is pointless until it's all over? 0080 basically ignores the question of what these individual governments are trying to achieve. This is very much about normal soldiers, frankly nobodies, doing the best they can in the situations in which they found themselves. Bernie goes into this battle believing that he is fighting to protect the colony. And so does Chris. They both have pretty much the exact same motivations for this fight. It's only Al who realizes that the colony is no longer in danger. It's only Al who realizes that Bernie was never a threat to the colony. Chris is, in fact, being, quote-unquote, brave. She's disobeying orders to chase down this mobile suit that's maybe a threat to the colony. She is thinking about what that cop said to her, and so she's thinking, well, but it's the foothills, so the collateral damage should be minimal. I should go after him. Yes, both of them are willingly walking into danger, putting themselves at risk because they believe that they are protecting others by doing so. Yet, they are not. In a somewhat objective sense, neither of them is actually protecting anybody else by going into this fight. Yet, they believe that they are. And the similarity between the two of them is emphasized in the animation. When both of them go into battle, we get practically identical shots straight on, just of the faces, just of the eyes. Both of them start with their heads bowed and eyes closed, then they open their eyes and look straight at the camera. And there's a subtle zoom in and pan as they do so. The camera work is very similar. They're wounded within seconds of each other. Both wounds are not deadly, but fairly bloody. And their mobile suits are damaged in mirrored ways. Chris's right arm gets hacked off and Bernie's left arm gets hacked off or blasted off. It just sort of falls off as he's walking through the woods um, after they were caught in a bunch of explosions. 
before the final clash between the two of them, they are shown in sequence panting in their cockpits. And at the very end, for a moment, I thought they were both going to be dead. I thought they would have both killed each other. I don't know if anyone else was watching the show for the first time. I'd be interested to hear if anyone else thought the (laughs) same thing. You brought up Al's perspective earlier and that we are hearing about the surrender, hearing about the removal of this threat from Al's perspective and what that adds. I also think it's incredibly important to this idea of stripping away any kind of heroic veneer on war because it feels anticlimactic. There's no big dramatic scene of that one Xeon captain refusing to fire his nuke. There is no big dramatic scene of him surrendering his ship. It all happens off screen. Because even this plan to use a banned, horrifying weapon on a colony full of people is, in the great scheme of this war, insignificant. Like, the insignificance of our own suffering and our own actions in history. How unimportant we all are in the vast scheme of time and the universe. And it also goes to emphasize a point that I've made in the past, that this whole operation is meaningless because the war is already over, essentially. Even this last-minute desperate attempt to inflict a little bit more damage fails because Xeon has lost so badly, because the Federation fleets control space. And how many of the the rank and file, how many of the quote-unquote nobodies really know or care about why the war is happening? You know, Bernie talks about, I'm doing this for myself. I don't hate the Federation. This isn't about avenging my teammates. He doesn't want Al to hate the Federation. He doesn't want Al to hate the other pilot. None of that ideological stuff matters to him. And we see a little bit of his perspective in this episode beyond the video. When he drops Al off, we see him gazing at Chris's house, somewhat wistfully. uh, And we see a little vision of Christmas morning or Christmas Eve in the Mackenzie household as they exchange gifts. I don't know if this is literally happening or if this is what Bernie is imagining. And what we are meant to take from that is that part of the reason Bernie is getting in that Zaku and trying to destroy the Alex is because he wants to protect Chris and her family. Just like Chris wants to protect all the people of the colony, she doesn't want to be left alone. You know what's wild? I didn't think about that at all. All I got from that scene was Bernie thinking about what might have been. That this is one of several we-who-are-about-to-die moments that he has where he's thinking about what might have been, that he could have dated her, that nice couple could have been his in-laws, he could have had this happy family life if things had turned out differently. And poor Al's horror to realize that if Bernie had succeeded, he still would have lost someone. If Bernie had succeeded, then Chris would be dead. And the way that this dawns on him as he's watching the paramedics take Chris out of the Alex. Oh, and the change in Al's physical behavior, his character animation in the back half of the episode after the tragedy is so real and heartbreaking. I feel as though this whole conversation moves in spirals. I have (sighs) to spiral back around to... 
when you were talking about how Al's mood changes, because in the previous episode, there was all that powerlessness and sense of doom. Then suddenly, ah, I have something useful to do. I have something I can do to try to help, even if it doesn't work. And he comes up with a good plan <laughs> to distract the Fetty soldiers. He is a good actor, unlike Bernie. Well, and unlike Al. This shows a remarkable change in him from episode three, when he lies to the police officers uh, about Bernie being his brother. In that scene, his crying is clearly fake. You can tell that he's lying. The audience is meant to know that he is lying. Here, it's much more convincing. I mean, there's a whole, like, Fetty's go home overtone to him vandalizing their car that made me wonder if U.S. soldiers and U.S. bases in Japan experienced similar vandalism from local people who do not want them there. In one of the alleyways, there's U.S. tagged on one wall and then a word that we don't say on the podcast. <laughs> Later on, there's a propaganda poster that says, army saves your colony, and shows this soldier with kind of a beatific expression holding a colony in their hands. When he's smashing up the car, or rather afterwards, when he's telling them this sob story, I had to wonder if he was getting the tears, the emotion, that sense of grief from a real place. Is he actually thinking about Steiner? when he's sobbing and saying, you killed my dad? Is he perhaps experiencing anticipatory grief, thinking about his own dad dying when the colony is destroyed? I think that's very likely. In the first montage of them fixing up the Zaku, he is sitting in the cockpit, looking at all these screens, checking on systems, and he says to Bernie, can you fix it? Bernie says, yes. Can you beat the Gundam? Piece of cake. But they aren't real questions, they're rhetorical. It's like a coach psyching up an athlete. <laughs> can you lift that weight? Yes, I can. Are you gonna beat him? Yes, I am. Are you gonna set a new record? Yes. Like, it's all about psyching Bernie up. But also about psyching Al up. And then as the episode progresses, Al realizes that Bernie could really die. Now Al has a sense of mortality, he didn't before. And this is the reason he wants to stop the fight, because the Al of episode one wouldn't care if the fight didn't need to happen. He would want to see a mobile suit fight for the sake of seeing a mobile suit fight. Yeah, he witnesses the coolest mobile suit fight of the series and experiences no joy from it. Because now there's a human person in that mobile suit who he cares about. And death is this real permanent thing that could happen to someone he cares about. There must be a connection then between the use of like parade balloons, party balloons in this combat as decoys with the way the kids talk about the explosions in episode one as being better than fireworks. There's this association with show and pageantry. And then at the end of the episode, there is this painful contrast between his seemingly idyllic life. You know, it's a beautiful day outside, a breeze flutters the kitchen windows, his mom is making him breakfast, the coffee maker burbles, his parents joke around together and seem fond of each other, and his dad is back. 
and he is having nightmares and he can't sleep and he's become withdrawn in a way that his father, who's seen less of him lately, thinks is maturity, but his mother looks concerned about. As well she should. He's, he's blunted. The trauma is obvious. He's yelling in his sleep. He's staring off into space. You know, when he's at breakfast, he's just sort of gazing at the wall until his mom addresses him directly. He walks when he used to run. We see this image of him reflected in the toaster, and he's just like, he's just so flat and not there. Al has been around a lot of explosions without even a normal suit helmet on. Yeah. So in addition to the emotional and psychological stuff that's happened, he's probably badly concussed and not receiving treatment for that. Well, by the time we see him at the end of the show, it's been two weeks. It's like January Mm. 14th when this is happening, thanks to the newspaper that his dad is reading. But everything Al does, it feels like he is a long distance away from his body. And part of the pain is that he can't talk to anyone about it. No. But at the same time, the reaction of Che and Telcott during the principal's speech makes very clear that even if he could, not everyone around him would be helpful. The overwhelming message of the back half of this episode is that no one understands. There are people in Al's life who really love and care about him, and that's great for him. It it, it will help him enormously. But his mother doesn't understand. His dad definitely doesn't understand. His teacher doesn't understand. Dorothy doesn't understand. Like, they want to help him. They can see that there's something wrong, but he is, in this way, totally isolated. And he probably will be forever. Even if he had the emotional wherewithal to talk about it, He can probably never tell people what happened because he is a collaborator in this whole thing. Before we talk about the ending of the episode, I do want to talk about Bernie again. I hope you all listened to our episodes on Char's counterattack because I need to harken back to one of them. Bernie is using his sunglasses in a very similar way that old school Char does, which we kind of broke down when we talked about Char's counterattack. Bernie is using the sunglasses to mask his own fear and his own sadness from Al. It's a way for him to keep up this cheerful, matter-of-fact, kind of nonchalant facade around this kid who is basically staring at him all the time. (laughs) In a lot of ways, he is borrowing or mirroring back at Al, Al's own optimism. And even when he mentions to Al, you know, if I die... He does it in kind of like a cheerful, like, well, on the off chance, you know, it's not a big deal, but, but, you know, (laughs) and he understands Al so much more now or sympathizes more when they get to the point where there's really nothing more for Al to do. He knows Al needs to be useful. Al needs to feel like he's helping. So he entrusts one last task to him and he tells him this is very important and I'm counting on you. That's part of what makes the ending so tragic, because the ending goes to such great lengths to emphasize that none of these people around Al really get him. But Bernie did. Bernie really did get Al. We opened this discussion of the episode by referencing our extremely strong emotional reactions to watching the show. And while I lost it at a couple of the predictable points, I was not expecting it to be so totally overcome listening to the principal giving his speech at the end. 
that scene is incredibly painful because it is a very old sentiment. And as people who are now adults, especially at the end of watching this particular show, the overwhelming feeling is, ah, and we are just continually failing. You know, the principal says, I hope all of you will work to make a world where war doesn't happen, where we don't have to experience these kinds of losses. And it's like, oh, no, we still have all that. And even within Gundam, we know that in seven years, they're going to be doing all of this again and periodically thereafter. So, yeah, there is that aspect. But it hit me even sooner. It hit me almost as soon as the principal started talking. And I think a lot of this comes down to the performance of the voice actor who turned in phenomenal work, at least in the Japanese. We barely see the principal. We, you know, we get these panning shots over the kids. But in the speech that the principal is giving, you can feel the personal pain that when he says, we have lost countless brothers and sisters and friends and parents, probably he has lost people he knows. Probably many of the teachers, many of the students have. Probably many of the students have been killed. The staff of the school probably know better, and in particular the principal and administrative staff, than any other people in this particular school community how many students and teachers have been affected. I, uh, I was not hit by it in the same way. I couldn't help feeling that the, the contents of the speech feel almost trite, right? Isn't this what we say after every tragedy, after every loss? It's what people in charge always say and enjoin us to make it better and fix it and a brighter future and it feels a little empty. But it's the contrast between that emptiness and Al's grief that really gets me. In particular, because we see all of these other kids around him and basically none of them responding in the way that Al is responding. More than empty or hollow, the principal's speech feels inadequate. But of course it does. What words could possibly feel adequate in this circumstance? What principal ever expects to give a speech like this? As for Che and Telcott and the closing lines of the series, I'm fairly certain that Che and Telcott are meant to be sort of satirical stand-ins for Gundam fans and possibly to some degree for the team working on War in the Pocket. Most of this team would have been born in the 50s and 60s. They are the post-war generation. They did not live it. They do not remember it. Any portrayal that they're making is based off of other people's experiences, really. This is why I think the arcade scene from the prior episode is one of the most real and arresting in the whole show, because unlike all the other scenes that literally happen, the arcade scene is Al's anxious imagination, imagining what would happen to his colony if it were destroyed. And for kids growing up in Japan in the wake of World War II and during Vietnam, I imagine those kind of anxieties, those kind of imaginings would have been a real part of their psychic landscape. And this inescapable tension between the fan service and the horror tragedy, that it's not just wow, cool robot, or war is bad. It's both all the time. 
Che and Talcott represent a particular kind of Gundam fan who ultimately is not invested in these stories as stories. You know, they are obviously bored by any seriousness or talk of the costs of war or talk of peace. Che is cleaning his ear and Talcott is eating. Their excitement is about, it'll be bigger, it'll be more violent, it'll be more explosions, it'll be shinier. And not for nothing, Telcop brings up, and we'll get better souvenirs next time. And I can just hear overlaid over those lines of dialogue, oh, and think about the great kits we'll get with the next <laughs> series. And I don't think there's anything wrong with liking the battle scenes, liking the merch. Mm -hmm. But we have to acknowledge that tension. We have to acknowledge the incongruousness between the emotional realities of what the story is trying to tell us about a thing that most of us have never experienced and our love of big, shiny robots, cool fight choreography, and model kits and figurines. Yeah. In a way, War in the Pocket is more of a war story than any prior Gundam. Shows like First Gundam or Zeta or Double Zeta are really like... They are stories about growing up set within wars where the wars become kind of metaphorical and abstract. They are stories about Amuro or Camille or Judo becoming an adult and coming to understand the world and developing their own power as a person. 0080 is a story about a war and living through one or not. In the denouement, when Al's dad makes a comment about him seeming more grown up, we know that's not true. Like This isn't a story about how Al's experiences in the war have made him stronger and more mature. They have broken him. He is a shell of his former self, and what fills that shell is pain. Bernie doesn't get the transcendent catharsis of heroic sacrifice. Bernie gets killed for nothing. Because a battle hundreds or thousands of kilometers away, and about which he knew nothing, made his death unnecessary. There are no new type ghosts, no enlightenment, no lessons to learn. And as Che and Telcott predict, there will be more wars. The Grips conflict, around which Zeta revolved, is going to start right when Al and his friends are reaching military age. He is, after all, less than a year older than Camille. Now, I know we have a bunch of small details we want to talk about. Yeah, I imagine we'll end on a slightly more serious note, but would just like to point out, I did poll our patron Discord. Most of them are close to our age, and so this wasn't an issue. But I'd like to think that this podcast is going to be discovered by younger folks over the next, you know, five years, ten years who are going to wonder why Bernie is looking up a balloon company in this huge honking book. <laughs> That's called a Yellow Pages, and we used to have directories of businesses that would show up every year in these big booklets. And so if you needed a plumber, you didn't get online and search plumbers. You opened up the Yellow Pages and flipped through and looked for one in your general area. The page he's looking at has a bunch of other companies on it. I picked out at least one visual pun they're doing here. I assume there are others that I didn't recognize, but uh, on the right half of the 
page, there's an advertisement for mechanical and industrial designs by Buchi Izu. <laughs> Izubuchi being, of course, the mechanical designer for this show. Also, you used to be able to meet people at their gate at the airport. There was no security that you had to go through before the gate. That wasn't a thing. Yep. Oh, call back to some of our research from season two. If you remember when Nina looked into the history of hamburgers in Japan, uh, she noted that the first McDonald's in Japan opened in Ginza, and more particularly, it opened inside of a popular department store. So when Al goes to the Wonderland Company department store to get burgers, that's probably where that idea came from. Did you notice Al gets almost hit by cars a lot? <laughs> He's so reckless. He never looks while crossing the street. I mean, Al comes so close to being killed so many times in this episode. Explosions going off near him. That one time when Chris is shooting, like, right over his head. I really loved the moment when the Federation are calling up Chris to go pilot the Alex and fight the Zaku, and the, uh... Command Center receives word that Rhea has informed them they will be sitting this one out, which I assume is a big you for the way that the Federation acted during the first attack, leaving everything up to them until the last minute. What's that song you like to sing? A taste of your own medicine. But really to seal how wonderful this moment is, the commander audibly grumbles <laughs> after receiving this news. In his room at the end, Al has received a new toy, an extremely realistic replica of one of the Federation's rifles. Oh, that's a replica of a Federation rifle. I wondered if it was the Bandai version of the light gun. No, it's a Federation rifle, which I know because I looked at them very particularly because I was identifying what real-world rifle they're based on. Stay tuned for that, listeners. Maybe next week. So many things to talk about next week. I feel like talking with Mateo about the animation has opened my third eye and allowed me to see a lot of things <laughs> I wouldn't have noticed before. Um, the way the Alex like counterbalances with its jets when it's right about to land and then kind of staggers and rights itself, I thought was phenomenal. Um, there's a bit where the mono eye for the Zaku like swings along its track. It goes a little bit past where it's supposed to end up and then it corrects to move back into place. And it's just like, hmm. This is like some pretty fundamentals of animation, like go past and come back. But to see it done with the mono eye is just like, ooh, yes, that's animation. I love the things we're getting excited about <laughs> now that we're paying attention uh, to the animation in that way. It's not the arrival of a new mobile suit. Oh, yeah. It's like the way that hair fell across her shoulder. Yes. Water on a Zaku. <laughs> Get the Zaku wet. But only if it looks good. Yeah. And did you notice the way the Alex gets damaged throughout this fight more or less mirrors what happens to the Gundam at the end of first Gundam? Head cut off, one arm destroyed. I had not. It's last stabbing instead of last shooting. I suppose it's fitting that we end at the end and talk about the closing animation We've noted previously that the closing animation appears to be 
heavily inspired by or even direct recreations of children in wartime photography. I confess I expected from these photographs, from these stills at the end, that Rhea was going to wind up more involved in the war, that things were going to be more destroyed, all of the kids were going to be more affected, that we were going to see the colony on a war footing and more actively in danger than wound up happening. I thought we were going to see more of what's depicted in this ending sequence in the show itself, and we really didn't. However, what I think this ending sequence does, and really has done through the whole show, but it's important that it's still here on the last episode, is just like the show wants us to remember that it's about Al, it wants us to remember that what has happened to Al, and worse, affects kids all over the world and all throughout time, that Al is himself, but he could also be any one of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of children affected by violent conflict throughout history and around the world. They do something here that is astonishingly clever. Throughout the first five episodes of the show, these ending photographs are all in black and white or sepia. They look old. And now, in the final episode, and only in the final episode, they're in color. Suddenly, they're not pictures from the ancient past. They could be anywhere, anytime. It's present, it's current, and it's also uh, sort of immortal. The use of black and white or sepia photographs of certain periods of history or historical figures or other cultures is often used to make those things feel longer ago than they were, to make them feel more distant and less pertinent, less real. Changing to color demands that we acknowledge that these things happen now. And now, Tom's rapid-fire research roundup. Xeon edition. One of the downsides to these shorter seasons is that there are so many things we want to research, but only so much time in which to do it. We could probably settle in and do four or five oops all research episodes after finishing direct coverage of War in the Pocket, but there's all that other Gundam waiting for us, so we have to move on. Thus, this week I'm going to do a rapid-fire research roundup mostly focused on the Xeon military side of things. Special thanks to Mark Simmons, who recently posted a bunch of 0080 setting design materials on Twitter that were invaluable for this piece. The character and uniform designs for tertiary cast folk like Commander Killing or the Granada-based commander who falls afoul of a mutiny at the beginning of episode 5 were handled by mecha designer Izubuchi Yutaka, reportedly because character designer Mikimoto Haruhiko wasn't particularly strong at military-style designs. Most of these characters started as photos of actors provided by overall director Takayama. We know the identities for a few of them, and at some point I may speculate about a couple of others. Let's start with that murdered general. He's not named in the course of the show, and the credits list him simply as Commander. But he's named Rugenzu which is probably Rugens, but could be Lugans. As I hinted a few weeks back, that name could be a reference to Operation Rugen, 
the code name for the bombing of Guernica. Or it might be derived, with a little syllable morphing, from the name of the actor on whom the character was based, Kurt Jurgens. I'm not entirely sure when the Rugen's name was decided, though there is a faint handwritten note on one of the early rough drafts that might read as Rugenzu. The design inspiration, the actor Jürgens, was a German and later Austrian stage and screen actor best known in the English-speaking world for his roles as a villain in James Bond movie The Spy Who Loved Me and as a wealthy businessman in the 1956 Bridget Bardot vehicle and God Created Woman. Jürgens started acting in 1935 and appeared regularly in film and on stage until 1944, when he was arrested for criticizing the Nazi government and held in an internment camp for the rest of the war. He returned to the screen in 48, and in 1955 he played the lead in The Devil's General, a West German film about the life and demise of Luftwaffe General Ernst Udert. I mention this movie in particular both because it is one of Jürgens' most famous breakout performances, but also because I think it may have been the specific source of the photo on which General Rugens' design was based. I will put some visual aids in the show notes, but beyond the purely visual comparisons, there are some plot similarities, too. The fictionalized version of Udert who appears in the film is portrayed as a man who has lost what little faith he might have had in the Nazi regime, and he clashes with SS and Gestapo officers in a fashion reminiscent of Rugens' clash with killing albeit with a different outcome. I stress, by the way, that this somewhat heroic depiction is fictional, based on a play that was written by a personal friend of the general. The real Udet was a World War I fighter ace and a wingman to the Red Baron, who joined the Nazi party in 33, was put in charge of procurement and supply for the Luftwaffe, developed alcoholism, and died by suicide early in the war. Next is the Xeon captain charged with actually launching the nuclear weapon at Al's colony. The credits merely list him as Kancho, captain, but the character design documents do include the name von Herrschingu, anglicized as von Helsing. His look is based on actor Peter Cushing, possibly his appearance in 1970 horror film Scream and Scream Again, where he plays an officer in a totalitarian regime and wears a Nazi-esque uniform. As for the name von Helsing, Cushing played the vampire-slaying Dr. von Helsing in Dracula, The Brides of Dracula, Dracula AD 1972, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, and The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. So I'm calling it a day on this one. This is Rapid Fire Research. We gotta move on. Von Helsing's small fleet consists of one Chive or Tibet-class battlecruiser, the Graf Zeppelin, and two souped-up late-model Musais, Siegfried and Valkyrie. While the names aren't said in the course of the show, someone with keen eyes and a pause button can make out the names of each written on their hulls. The Graf Zeppelin must get its name from the Graf Zeppelin, an aircraft carrier that was almost built by the Nazis. Construction started on the ship in late 1936 as part of Germany's efforts to develop a modern, surface-going fleet that could match the power of the British Royal Navy. Although by 1936, the Nazis were already woefully late to the party. Japan, Britain, France, and the U.S. had all deployed purpose-built aircraft carriers during the 20s. Building an aircraft carrier is time-consuming and expensive work, especially for Germany's already overtaxed industrial capacity. 
Thus, the Graf Zeppelin was not ready in time for the start of hostilities, and construction to finish the ship would repeatedly be halted, resumed, cancelled, uncancelled, prioritized, and deprioritized as the fortunes and needs of the Nazi war machine fluctuated. Meanwhile, the mostly completed hull of the ship was towed back and forth between ports to keep it away from Allied bombers. By 1942, the state of the art for naval aviation had changed so much that the original 1936 design needed major revisions. Nazi planners estimated that if they rushed, they could maybe have it ready by late 1943 or early 1944. But in January 43, angry with his fleet for not performing better in battle, Hitler ordered all the big surface ships scrapped. He soon relented, but by then all work on the Graf Zeppelin had been halted and would not resume. The Graf Zeppelin was scuttled in 1945, just before Red Army troops seized its port. In the end, the Graf Zeppelin wound up as just another pointless waste of precious resources, its biggest contribution to the war effort being that it was, from time to time, used to store timber. It's a fun story, and an important point of comparison for Gundam. One of the things that has always linked Zeon to Nazi Germany is their penchant for wasting scarce war materials on boondoggles and vanity projects like the Zucrello, or too little, too late superweapons like the Elmeth. Here, the Gundam creators just got very explicit with their reference. Although somewhat less explicit than the Graf Zeppelin, the names of the Musais, Valkyrie and Siegfried, don't require much guesswork either. Valkyries are fairly well-known figures from Norse mythology. They are minor deities who watch over wars and warriors, deciding who lives and who dies. For those who die in battle, the Valkyries lead them on to their afterlife. Siegfried, perhaps somewhat less well-known in the English-speaking world, is the German name for a legendary hero common to both the German and Norse traditions. It's debated whether he's purely mythological or if he's based on an actual historical figure, perhaps one of the Frankish Merovingians, although there are other theories. As is common in myth, there are many different stories about Siegfried, and every version of the story changes things at least a bit. Those that have survived in writing are a mixture of the pre-existing oral traditions and probably some inventions by the authors who compiled them. Depending on the version, the names and places change. The same people do different things, the same deeds are done by different people. Some versions make Siegfried very wise, and some make him a big, strong, dumb, himbo kind of hero. I don't think the particulars of the mythology are relevant to the use of these two names in 0080, so I will restrain myself to covering only the barest bones of the Siegfried story. Siegfried is an orphan with a heroic lineage, possibly descended from a god, and is raised by the devious blacksmith Regan. The blacksmith himself was one of the sons of a powerful and wealthy sorcerer, but their family treasure included a golden ring that was cursed to bring misfortune to whoever possessed it. Regan and his brother Fafner coveted the ring and the treasure. They conspired to kill their father and split his wealth. But before his blood was cold, Fafner turned against Regan and drove him away. Then, using magic, Fafner transformed himself into a dragon so that he could better guard the treasure hoard. Regan, having reinvented himself as a blacksmith but still yearning for the cursed ring, convinced the young hero Siegfried to go and slay the wicked dragon who lived nearby. He armed Siegfried, forging him the sword Graham out of the pieces of a blade once wielded by Siegfried's own father, and taught him how to kill the dragon. 
Don't worry about how I, a mere humble blacksmith, know so much about the killing of dragons, my boy. Just go and kill that very specific one who I have certainly never met before in my life. On Regan's advice, Siegfried concealed himself in a pit in the ground on the trail the dragon used when he went for his morning bath. When Fafnir passed over him, Siegfried stabbed the dragon, inflicting a mortal wound on his soft underbelly. The dragon's blood rained down on him in the pit, and where it touched him, his skin became as tough and impenetrable as horn. Hungry after a hard day's work of pit digging and sword stabbing, the young hero roasted and ate the dragon's heart, which gave him the magical ability to talk to birds. Having thus attained the mythological equivalent of a Twitter account, Siegfried discovered that all the birds were, for some reason, discussing the wicked blacksmith Regan's plan to betray and kill Siegfried in order to obtain the cursed gold that the young man had only just gotten from the dragon. On his return, Siegfried beat Regan to the punch, or in this case the stab, and rode off with the treasure seeking adventure. He eventually arrived at the court of King Gunther, and fell for the king's sister, Kriemhild. Gunther agreed to the match if Siegfried would help him win the heart of the mighty shield maiden Brunhilde, a warrior, and in some versions of Valkyrie, who would only agree to marry a heroic man who performed the necessary feats of strength and courage. Gunther didn't have a chance, but Siegfried could do it all with ease, so the two friends worked out a little deception. Aided by an invisibility cloak and the magic ability to transform their appearances, Siegfried did all the work, and Gunther took all the credit, eventually convincing Brunhilde to marry him. The exact details of how all this went down vary quite a bit in the telling. Some versions are pretty vile, and even the most flattering ones make Siegfried and Gunther out to be pretty reprehensible. Still, having achieved their goal, Gunther was good to his word and gave Siegfried his blessing to marry Kriemhild, which he did. Everything was going great until Brunhilde and Kriemhild began to argue over which of the two should have precedence. Brunhilde snarked that she was married to the king, while Kriemhild was married to some nobody who had been coasting along for years just because of that one time he laid in the mud and stabbed one overgrown snake like 15 years ago. Kriemhild snapped back that Brunhilde's husband was too much of a punk to even woo her himself, which I assume led to something of a, wait, what? moment. Now aware of how badly she had been deceived, Brunhilde considered her options and chose violence. <laughs> now, because of the absolutely terrible magical rules that govern these myths, Brunhilde had lost all of her own physical strength when she got married. I know. But she had gained the power of manipulating men to do things for you. I know. She convinced her husband, the king, and some of his courtiers to conspire against Siegfried. Thanks to the dragon blood marinade, his skin was still as impenetrable as horn. But Brunhilde let Gunther and his lackeys in on a secret. There had been a bit of leaf stuck to Siegfried's back when he got basted in dragon blood, and it left a portion of his shoulder unprotected. For some reason, the birds did not warn Siegfried about this betrayal, so when the king invited him to go hunting, he came without the slightest hesitation. Maybe they also thought he had been scummy and figured this was coming to him. Etu, birdie. When Siegfried stopped to drink from a spring, one of the king's lackeys snuck up behind him and put a spear through his weak spot. Now back to Gundam. 
The pairing of Siegfried and Valkyrie together as the matched escorts for the Graf Zeppelin suggests a connection between them. And as I mentioned just now, the warrior maiden Brunhilde, whose enmity ultimately causes Siegfried's doom, is in some versions of Valkyrie. Yet this introduces an interesting problem. The Siegfried myth is preserved in both Norse and Germanic traditions, but it diverges somewhat between the two. The identification of Brunhilde as a Valkyrie is specific to the Norse version, but the name Siegfried is specific to the German version. Thus, if we think that the names of all three ships in the squadron are meant to be connected, and I do think that the names of all three ships are meant to be connected, then we need to find a Germanic telling of the myth that also incorporates aspects of the Norse version and which is somehow connected to the Nazi regime that built the Graf Zeppelin and its Wagner. Specifically, it is the 15-hour-long four-opera cycle The Ring of the Nibelung, composed by Wagner over the course of three decades and ultimately finished in 1874. The Ring cycle is loosely based on Norse and German mythology, particularly the Poetic Edda, the Volsung Saga, and the Nibelungenlied. While the cycle opens with the Rhinegold and closes with Twilight of the Gods, its second and third parts are, respectively, the Valkyrie and Siegfried. Wagner and his works, especially in his later years, became strongly associated with German nationalism. Siegfried, in particular, was cast as an idealized Germanic hero who became symbolic of a kind of conservative, backward-looking, nostalgic nationalism intent on recapturing the imagined glories of a mythological past. And that's exactly how the works were leveraged by Hitler and the Nazi party. This was, we may assume, helped along by Wagner's own viciously anti-Semitic writings. Hitler himself was obsessed with Wagner's music from a young age. Supposedly, it was the only music he really enjoyed. Hitler patronized Wagner's old theater, incorporated the music into his rallies, and forced party faithful to sit through performance after performance of the same deadly serious handful of epics. By forced, by the way, I do mean forced. On at least one occasion in 1933, Hitler had to send thugs around to drag party members out of the bars in order to fill seats in the theater. Wagner's music was included on the soundtrack for the propaganda film Triumph of the Will and The Ride of the Valkyries, perhaps the composer's most recognizable single work, was played on the radio to accompany reports about successful German air raids. The piece that plays for Siegfried's death in Twilight of the Gods was used for announcements of important deaths during the war, including Hitler's. It's powerful stuff. Good music, loathsome politics. But what does it mean to reference the Graf Zeppelin and Wagner's ring cycle in the names of these three ships? Like von Helsing and Rügen, the Kempfer, Bernie Weissman, and Captain Steiner, and like a lot of what we talked about in our coverage of Schar's counterattack, I believe that what we're seeing here is part of a trend in Gundam, 
starting in the late 80s or so to, let's say, Deutschify Zeon. Of course, there were always German influences on Zeon from the beginning. Nazi Germany, certainly, but also Imperial Germany and the Kingdom of Prussia, too. And this was all balanced by a significant association with Imperial Japan. But now it seems that the pool of influences is narrowing. The references are becoming more specific and more explicit. From the remove of three decades, we can observe it happening over time, but we can only speculate about the motivations, conscious or not, behind this low-key realignment of Xeon. Perhaps this was an intentional project with an agenda, guided from above. Perhaps not. Either way, we have yet to see its terminus. And perhaps we'll come to understand it better as we learn more. I was thinking about whether we should do a Requiem piece for Bernie, the way we sometimes do. But the reason we started doing them was because we would get attached to these characters and then it would feel like the show didn't give them the send-off that we felt like they deserved. Yeah, usually background characters who had been just active enough that we had a sense of them, we'd gotten attached, and then they would die and the show wouldn't really make anything of their deaths. But 0080 is, in a certain light, the story of Bernie's death and its aftermath. It is Bernie's send-off, and this episode is all about saying goodbye to Bernie. It feels like we wouldn't be able to add anything to that, like we'd just be gilding the lily. What better eulogy could we give him than Bernie's own last words to Al? What better tribute than Al's tears? Next time on episode 5.8, War in the Podcast, we wrap up our discussion of War in the Pocket and ho ho ho, less crying. Not none, just less. So many research topics, so little time. Pausing for breath. What would Sydney actually look like this time of year? Or Tom breaks the rules just this once. I make the mistake of looking at the watch list. Can I admit I'm glad there's no recap next week? UNT Spacey, throwing hands, and are you ready for two to four months of SD Gundam? Buck up, after the SDs, Tomino's back, baby! You never give up forever.
Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Pieces of Life by Analog by Nature. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. With the Omicron variant of COVID-19 currently surging in New York and around the world, I cannot in good conscience encourage you to share your wrong Gundam opinions, not even on deserted street corners. So stay home and mutter your wrong Gundam opinions to yourself or your most patient roommate, family member, pet, gunpla model, or kitchen appliance. Maybe something like, surely it's impossible to never give up forever. There must be a point when you give up, right? No matter how sweet you are. We won't hear you. But that's for the best, don't you think? Let me just get my notebook. Turn on the light you hate. I would hate it less if you figured out a way to do it that didn't shine the light in my face. I promise I'm trying to do that. In the funicular on the way home, I wanted to ask you about that. Do people know what a funicular is? Is that like <laughs> too weird a word to use? Um, I just I would I would go ahead and use it. Okay. Um, I don't know how people are going to react to it, but maybe they'll look it up and learn something cool. I'm pretty certain it's a funicular. Yeah, it is. Remember when that guy was making fun of us for getting emotional about Gundam? Yes. That guy? Well, because some people think being cynical is a personality. Mm-hmm. There is nothing wrong with being sensitive. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing particularly admirable in never feeling anything about anything. Get a muffler. Without any sniffling. Oh, it, right. I have to do like, the sniffle. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I would say try it on the doing the sniffle, not on the terrible day for rain, but on the yes, Miss. I can't get over this soldier shaking him like, kid, what's wrong with you? What happened? What are you doing here? He's in shock. You've never seen shock before? Come on. Visually, this scene of Al standing in the palm of the Zaku's hand and looking down at the colony reminded me a lot of that very famous uh, romantic painting of the guy standing like on a rocky outcropping looking over a sea of mist. I think it's called Wanderer Over a Sea of Clouds or something. Um, it's, it's hugely famous. It gets referenced a lot. And... Given that our research pieces for this series have already touched on Picasso and Miro, I suspect that great painters and paintings may have been major visual influences for this team. But something about the way Al is posed and the way the shot is lit from below 
I could see that. It helps to convey the sublime experience of Al looking down at the colony. Oh ho ho, getting all fancy. The sublime. It's a whole thing from uh, landscape painting. Oh, I thought it was just anything you put underneath a lime. I'll be here all week, folks. Thank you.